0: Hello, everyone. This is Molly Rowan Leach, your host for Restorative Justice on the Rise, an ongoing telecouncil series co-hosted by the Peace Alliance. This archive features Lauren Abramson, who is the executive director and founder of the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, Maryland. It was an extraordinary telecouncil with Lauren, and we hope you enjoy this archive. For more information also about this series, and where the archives are housed, even from last year's segment, go to dopeace.us. That's d-o-p-e-a-c-e Thank you and enjoy. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach. I'm a board member of the Peace Alliance, and in great thanks to the Peace Alliance for this series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. Restorative Justice on the Rise uh, was originally a series that was began last season, and so you can find archives from all of the conversations and councils that we've had now in our second season here at DoPeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E This is an international telecouncil series that is free and available to everyone in the world. People Skype in, dial in from wherever they are, and of course we have the archives, and the building resource list available for people in our email blasts, as well as a plan to create even more of a resource center online recognizing that there's a very powerful movement happening um, that has grown over the last few decades, but certainly it seems to be now that there are some great um, individuals and communities coming together to really build bridges between the existing system and what is becoming in the forward movement in the justice conversation. So just a few quick notes uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time in this council. This is set up in a way that we'll be conversing with our special featured guest tonight as we do each time um, in a way that allows you to be uh, a part of the conversation. At about the half hour I'll just prompt everyone that they can press 1 on your telephone keypad if you have a question or a comment. We'll also do that towards the end of the call tonight. But I'd also like to just urge anyone who might have something on their mind or heart during the entire hour that we are together to go ahead and press one on your telephone keypad even if it's not at those times. Again, this series archives is posted at DoPeace.us Please go there to visit the Discussion Board and also the Growing Resource Center, as well as upcoming guests and information about their programming and what they're up to in the world of justice. So without further ado, uh, I just am so honored and just in great admiration of our special guest tonight, Lauren Abramson. Lauren is the founder and executive director of the Community Conferencing Center of Baltimore. She's also a part of the Department of Psychiatry, I believe Child Psychiatry at Johns Hopkins University. She spent a good 15 years of her professional life um, on the ground, implementing systems in delicate areas with youth, with people who have experienced violent crime, bringing people together with a fairly simple notion of allowing the voices to be heard when conflict and crime arise. So it's a great honor knowing uh, from my own personal view of the common thread that we see in this series of the hunger that individuals and communities are now having in understanding how to put together a system that works. And tonight we have Lauren Abramson who is, cr- has created, with her team, a working model. So just um, it's a great pleasure to have you here, Lauren. And I wondered if you might honor us with sharing what brought you to this work, and maybe a little bit about the path that brought you into it.
1: Sure. Thank, thank you so you.
0: much for being oh, here.
1: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you for putting together such a wonderful series, and making it so easily accessible—it's really fantastic. Um, so I'm just really glad to be part of this. I—I um, I came to this work uh, through, I guess, a somewhat funny direction. I—well, uh, first of all, I guess a big part of it is that I grew up in Detroit in the 1960s, and. Um, Grew up on a block that was my community, so very strongly. Um, And in 67, when the riots happened, that community really, there was a lot of upheaval. Um, There was immediate white flight. And so the transition that happened very quickly in that community, we all felt it very much. And what we created in the wake of that was... um, you know, had its challenges and its strengths. So I think that I I always say I'm kind of imprinted on Rust Belt cities, which is why I work in Baltimore now. But I've always very much been connected in working in communities. And then I got uh, a doctorate in neuroscience and animal behavior. Um, It was called biopsychology then. And I was studying how emotions affect health and illness. Um, and I always thought that I would sort of have these two parallel interests, that I would work in communities and I would be doing this research on how our bodies, how biologically we're built to have emotions and what the impact is on our health when we um, suppress them and when we can express them freely. And then in 1994, um, I was at a meeting of the Sylvan Tompkins Institute I had worked with Sylvan Tompkins who was a brilliant and largely ignored psychologist um, for the last two years of his life and he talked about the primacy of emotions Mm biologically for human beings and he passed away in 1991 and in 94 there was a meeting of an institute created in his name and that's when I met David Moore from Australia and he was talking about how community conferencing, which they had adapted from the Maori in New Zealand, um, how they had transformed their juvenile justice system by using this process. And um, his group was using conferencing um, to deal with workplace conference uh, conflicts. And I thought, you know, gosh, this is just an amazing process for people to be healthier Emotionally with each other, and it can be done in communities. And it was like the coin dropped; like I could combine my interests in working with in communities and my interests in building healthier ways for us to be emotionally. So, um, mm-hmm. I went back to Baltimore, and three years later, after tilling the soil. Um, we started conferencing in 1998.
2: Could you
0: tell me and all of us a little bit more what you mean by tilling the soil? Something <laughs> happened. Something happened when you arrived in Baltimore. You, the coin had already dropped. And and then between then and the implementation of this incredible program, what were you doing? And who were you connecting with?
1: Um, well, I should hasten to say that we're still tilling the soil. (laughs) Good
0: (laughs) Um, good. Good to hear that. (laughs) Yeah. You know,
1: as (laughs) Tay Pranus um, often says, and I think most of us doing this work realize that it's not just about implementing a different kind of program, it's about trying to change our culture. Mm. And that's a very long process. Mm. So Uh, What I did in those three years was I called, well, I crawled out of my uh, shell as a uh, um, sort of an internalized kind of person and started calling people in neighborhoods, people in education, people in criminal justice. Um, I just started cold calling everybody and said, look, there's this social technology out here that we could really use um, and started generating interest in it and started con- convened a couple meetings with anybody who wanted to come and listen to hear about what it was. And from that, I, I mean, it, it the next year I, g- I was trained as a facilitator and then two years later, I guess, after that, well, actually it was three years after that, we started was when when we officially launched Community Conferencing. So Tilling the Soil is there, you know, just getting out there and talking to whoever you can about this because one of the things that has just been so fun about it is that you never know who's gonna resonate with this and who's gonna say, you know what, I know somebody and um, let me connect you with them and so if I'm on an airplane, if I'm, you know, wherever I am, you know, if the conversation comes around to there, it's just that's tilling the soil.
0: Mm. And and it seems to also offer a sense of we're not trying to go in and tell the existing system that it's wrong um, because that, that doesn't work either as far as, um, like, we were just talking last week with, with Dr. Carl Sofer of Eastern Mennonite University and he was sharing his experiences in Africa and the importance of going in with, with a sense of humility and of wanting to hear from the people, whether it's within the existing system or within the neighborhoods of what, you know, what's up and, and what, what, how do they think uh, justice might, might occur. In whatever conflict has arisen or might arise, how does that that seem to you, Lauren? Oh,
1: I, it's I I can totally relate to that. And I mean, one of the things that we'll typically say to whether we're going to the juvenile justice system or to the courts um, or schools, you know, if I meet with a principal. Because schools especially, I mean, they get bombarded every other week with the latest, greatest, new thing. And what I'll say is, you know, what are you finding, what's the most frustrating kinds of things for you to deal with? And what are you using now and how's it working for you? Mm -hmm. Because if things are working, then they don't really need something different. But so many things, unfortunately, are not working well. And so, whether we go to police or whether we go to courts, you know, police will say, "Well, what's really frustrating us is that we keep arresting and re-arresting the same people over and over again because they go to court, or they go to the juvenile justice system and nothing happens, or they go through court and they're out again, and they don't feel like there's any real consequences um, when after they've arrested someone." So every sector kind of has their own frustrations, and then we can respond to their frustrations and say, here's what we've been doing, and here's how it can address that. Like with conferencing, the reoffending rate for young people who go through community conferencing is 60% lower Mm. than the juvenile justice system. And we, we've done an analysis just of juvenile auto theft cases that we've done, and the reoffending rate was zero. And that was like a, a, um, a year to a year and a half out. So, you know, that can get the attention of some of the most macho and kind of tough, you know, law enforcement and other folks who initially want to say, well, this is just being soft on crime. Well, what are you doing now that's really working out for you? And then they kind of roll their eyes and they're like...
0: (laughs) Right. I I just want to point out there's an excellent video on the community conferencing website that actually illuminates a bit of that, which I think is likely that many of us in our individual communities and in the programs that we're implementing are finding that initial eye-rolling or. Um, perhaps resistance that this is touchy-feely and wishy-washy and what have you, and so that was actually one of the questions that I was um, thinking of going into here was uh, how, how do you work with um, and what what do you how do you respond and and dialogue when you come up with um, with that kind of uh, resistance to what might be called restorative justice, community conferencing, a new way of looking at uh, leaning into our conflicts. And by the way, again, that video is at communityconferencing.org. That's, of course, the, the website for the Community Conferencing Center.
1: Thanks. Yeah, the, the video shows an example of um, actually an auto theft case. Um, a sexual harassment case in a middle school, and then a neighborhood conflict, so just so people can have a sense of what's on there. And it's only, I think, about eight minutes long. Um, But I think the way we usually enter the conversation is, like I said, to just find out from people what they're, like, how are you dealing with conflict in a a neighborhood? What typically happens? Um, Or with, police or with juvenile justice or with schools you know how are you currently dealing with things and how's it working out for you instead of i I guess we don't always you know start by launching into what we do but asking folks what their experience is and see Mm -hmm. if there's a way where we can be helpful Mm -hmm. that makes sense
0: that that absolutely makes sense, and it seems very much to be um, a, a very key aspect of building relationships. There, there, uh, there, there seems to be, in my humble view, from all the conversations we've had over the past couple years here, uh, a real need for relational connection, even in difficult situations with perhaps resistant um d a s or judges or or people within the system that really have their doubts that um coming in with from from that angle and authentically from that angle is really important
1: um, so definitely and i get i think another piece of that is what we've i mean this is sort of a lesson that i got from my from my mother very early on, I remember her being on the phone one time with the health insurance company, and she was on the phone for so long. And what she taught me out of that experience, she said, um, because by the end of it they had gotten the problem fixed, and she said, if you're ever working with a big you know, company or a big institution, find the person who's getting stuff done and who is actually doing things. You know, so she would just go to the next person. If she was talking to somebody, she would ask to talk to somebody else. Um, and I just find that no matter where we're working, that lesson is so helpful. Like in schools, we have, we have gotten our work embraced by schools because sometimes one of the most powerful people in a school sometimes is the school secretary. They know everybody that's going in Mm -hmm. and out of that school, and they're very well connected with the administration and with the teachers. And, you know, when we share what we're doing, sometimes the secretary is the one that goes to the principal and makes the case for us to bring us into the school. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's in the juvenile justice system, it's like we talk to as many people as we can. And... Find the person who's resonating with what we're saying, because if you get somebody inside who's a champion, that's you're way more likely to to build from there. Mhm uh, in
0: a moment, I'd like to go into how exactly these conferences are set up, and maybe even later this evening talk a little bit about um uh your thoughts on other working models in our world that perhaps, I I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but right now I just want to thank people for for coming. And um, if you're arriving late tonight, or perfectly on time rather, (laughs) I just want to welcome you. We're talking with Lauren Abramson of the Community Conferencing Center in Baltimore, Maryland. You can find out more about the Community Conferencing Center at their website. Which is community, uh, excuse me, communityconferencing.org. You also can find little social media buttons at the bottom of every page on their website, and they'd love to invite you to connect with them on Facebook, and like them there, and also connect with them on Twitter for upcoming events, trainings, and I think Lauren's going to talk a little bit about facilitator trainings in a little bit here. So just welcome everyone and. Before we go into a segment where we might open up the the line for comments or questions, I'd like to just honor one of the people here in the council tonight, uh, Dot Maver, from the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, and just acknowledge Dot's uh, work with Jeffrey Weisberg and Hart Phoenix and their their amazing work that they're doing, um, not just in Florida, but uh, nationwide. And Dot, I know that you had submitted a web question, but I wondered if you'd like to submit it uh, here live online tonight in the council. Welcome, dear.
3: Thank you, Molly. Hello, Lauren. It's so good to hear you're talking about this fine work that you're doing.
1: Hey, Dot. It's good to hear from you. As always, as always.
2: So
3: and actually my question is uh, really an invitation for you to speak about your work in direct relationship to uh, schools and that kind of environment in Baltimore is so challenged or has been in that way and now they're starting to use some of the processes as uh, I'm sure you've had uh, played a role in that. So I thought you might want to address that.
1: Sure. Um... I guess maybe for people who aren't familiar with community conferencing, I'll just share what the process looks like. Um, Perfect. So there's a trained and equally concerned facilitator um, that brings together everybody who's affected by a conflict or a crime and their respective supporters. and everybody sits in a circle and knows ahead of time that the group's gonna talk about three questions. The first question is to hear what happened from the people involved in um, the situation. And then everybody in the circle then gets a chance to share how they've personally been affected by what happened. Um, It is by design a very emotional process And then the third question, once everybody has had a chance to speak and people hear from each other, there's a much more um, nuanced and detailed story about what's really going on here. And then we ask the group, okay, what do you want to do to make this better and to prevent this from happening again? And if people can, they come up with an agreement, which is written down um, and each point on the agreement has what everybody agreed to by when is it going to be done and who's responsible for doing it and then we follow through to see what the compliance is with those agreements. And I'm just incredibly heartened to say that in Baltimore, uh, the land of the wire, if anybody has seen the HBO series The Wire, uh, we've done about I think now 12, 1,400 conferences with about 14,000 people. Um, And 98% of the time they come up with a written agreement and there's 95% compliance with that agreement. So um, having said that, um, you know, it's been interesting, Dot, I think for us, like we work, I like to say that we're indiscriminate about where we take referrals from. We work in neighborhoods, we work in schools, police, juvenile justice, courts, prisons, organizations—you name it. Um, I would say, as an institution, schools are, are the, is the toughest institution to work with, and I think part of that is because you know there's a central headquarters for schools, and then each school it's both centralized and decentralized. um, Because each school has a principal who is really the king or queen of that school. And so um, even though headquarters might have support certain policies, how they're implemented and with what kind of um, energy they're implemented really depends on the principal. So um, Baltimore has 190 schools, and we are 14 years into it now, we're now, community conferencing is listed as an option at all four levels of the school discipline code. And I say that like it's something, but it's, it's actually very frustrating because I would say most schools don't know what community conferencing is. Like, we worked hard to... We've been doing conferences in schools. Um, We've probably worked in 60 schools each year. Sometimes they're the same schools, sometimes not. But every time personnel changes, um, we kind of have to start at square one. Um, And we are not able to get headquarters to give us access to the principals so that we can, or to school administrators to educate them about what community conferencing is. Um, So, and there's a couple of reasons for that. But having said that, we get hundreds, literally hundreds of referrals from schools um, that, to deal with hate crimes, to deal with bullying, to deal with something that I think is very, not discussed much that is the source of a lot of school issues which is gossiping um... i call it gossip gangrene um... we deal with weapons cases where even when there was a zero tolerance to weapons cases we were getting principals referring us weapons cases because they were like it's ridiculous to be expelling kids when they bring a weapon to school because they've been getting attacked by other kids and they're just using it for protection. So um, conferencing has just been incredibly powerful to deal with a lot of the issues in the schools, girl fights, um, multiple student fights that go on and on and on, not just for days and weeks, but um, especially with girls, we have fights that have been going on for years. Um, and so what happens with conferencing is you get everybody together at the same time and these girls just get, or whoever it is, they get to the bottom of it. Um, and it's just, it's been very powerful. Um, I don't want to sort of drag on too much. I want to be, be able to answer more specifically what you might want to hear about. No. Actually, you have
3: answered it. You've addressed it. And you, you know, I've always
1: used the analogy, often use
3: the analogy of a garden. And you have been ripping sod for a long time. Thank you. And what we're starting to see now, as you're sharing, is that community conferencing and these kinds of practices are starting to be listed as options. And granted, uh, in our education system, we have yet to really have them be used more and more and more, but you have done such groundbreaking and wow, significant work. Thank you.
1: I appreciate it. There's certainly a lot of people that are doing this across the country that we're sort of we're standing on their shoulders. So.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dot. It's so good to have you with us tonight. Thanks, Mom. So, I'd like to move. uh, I know we have hands going up, um, but there is another question here that was pre-submitted that I think really fits into what we're discussing right now and it's from Isabel, and she asks, I'm interested in exploring whether a restorative justice program that receives referrals from the traditional justice system can be victim-focused. I wonder if you have any insight into this through your work in Baltimore, And she says, "I'm grateful for this opportunity to learn. So thank you for that question, Isabel. and would you like to respond to that, Lauren?
1: Sure. Um, do, can we know if Isabel's on the line?
0: She is indeed. I didn't want to put her on the spot, but Isabel, if you'd like to go live for a moment, just simply press one on your keypad and and I'll open it up. So again, she, she's asking uh, about exploring whether a restorative justice program um, that receives referrals from the traditional justice system can be victim-focused. Sure. Um, so and I'll try to is. answer that. Oh, okay. Is, uh, excuse me, Lauren. Isabel, welcome. Thank you for allowing me to let your voice be heard.
4: Thank you. Um, my question actually... Uh, came from a document called The Listening Project that was drawn up a few years ago. I can't remember all the authors, but one of them was Howard Zare. And it was uh, uh, just listening to victim and victim advocates across the country um, and hearing how they felt about the way that the restorative justice movement has gone. Um, And it's something we've been exploring where I'm working in Rochester, New York. So I'd love to hear... um, yeah, how how Lawrence addressed it, really.
1: So can you share with me what the, cons- how sort of maybe a summary of what the victims and victim advocates were feeling?
4: Yeah. Um That because restorative justice was um, essentially having to work within our criminal justice system, within the confines and within, um, the way that that's designed, very offender focused, it was losing the victim focus. And, and in our focused, I mean, we've experienced this where I work, in our uh, efforts to, to get cases and to uh, spread this, we do end up um, targeting um, offenders. And, and because they're they're the group that uh, we have access to through the d- traditional justice system rather than receiving referrals directly from victims because we don't have um, a conduit uh through which to for, for them to get in touch with us okay um, well i think um, i mean we always
1: i hopefully i 'll get to the answer of it um, we 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 always use the process as a voluntary process. so um, so when we work with say the juvenile justice system or with the courts or the police or whomever, what we the arrangement that we make with them is that if they refer a case to us um, and if we can have a conference and if the group the participants of the conference are able to come up with an agreement, and if there's compliance with that agreement, then they will close the case and they won't pursue it any further. So um, when we're referred a case, um, usually the, we call it the state's attorney, but the district attorney um, sometimes will contact the victims. Um, but usually we're the ones to contact them to just to um, tell them that this is an option. and engage them in a conversation to see if this is something that they'd be interested in participating in. So in that sense, we don't do any conferences without the people who've been affected by the incident. And so they have to, vol- they have to agree and be interested in participating with the understanding that if it doesn't work out, the case can will all will be returned and it'll be handled the way it normally would be. So I mean we haven't had any concerns from victims. I mean so that's why I I asked you what what some of the issues were, but the victims decide whether or not they want to participate. Um we've had calls from people who've been victims of crime that knew about conferencing and asked us if we could try to get it out of the court system to go to conferencing, and so we'll do that if it happens. But even, when it come, even if it comes through the system, we don't move forward until we speak with the victims. So in that sense, not every victim knows that it's an option because it depends on what cases they've sent to us. But the the, the people that have participated in general feel like you know they they have a voice in this process, and they can decide you know they have a voice in in deciding how to how to move forward. Does that answer the question
4: it does i'm I'm really grateful to hear that you always um have the people who have been affected at the conference I think that some some uh models have moved away from that um And I'm really glad that that that's still a part of your program.
1: Yeah, I mean, because, and this is really, I think, for us, we've really built the program not so much on a recipe for how to do the process, but on a really working to understand the principles behind what we're doing. And for me, a huge part of why this process is so effective is the emotion piece, that as human beings, we have emotions, we have affect, and I have seen when I worked in a behavioral medicine clinic and in other areas what happens to us when we put a lid on that. And so when I learned about conferencing, I really saw the power of it, be, ha, it's the, the core energy behind it and the power of the transformative process lies in their being it being an emotional process. And I say that because you don't get that emotion if you don't include the victims. And you don't get as much emotion. I know that some groups use victim representatives. And I think that you can handle more cases that way, but I think you're losing some, a really important part of the emotional impact. Um, And you're losing a big part of the community building Potential of the process um, uh David Moore and I wrote an article on the psychology of community conferencing that um, the reference for it is on our website, and where we really outline the specific theory and the biology behind this process, so if that's helpful to anybody,
0: it's out there. Mm. thank you so much, Isabel, for that really important question. And I, if I might just uh, throw in just a quick little snippet and vignette from this community, Lauren um, and Isabel and the rest of us, um, we had a very unique circumstance here in Colorado where there was a, a very violent crime that happened and affected more than one person in one night. And that was the actual impetus for our local community to create. A restorative circle uh, of sorts. However, not really knowing what what initially to do, we realized in hindsight that we had failed to provide the each of the victims the signal that they were a key part of of the of the circle. Um, whether they wanted to come or not, uh, we found out later a couple of them wanted to, and a couple of them did not want anything to do with it and so really uh, the discovery was made uh, again in that we had had slipped um, in giving that initial signal um, in in making it be known that this was really first and foremost about hearing from, from them if they were willing and tending space with and for them. Um, a few of them did come to feel that it was offender-centered and I think that, uh, Isabel, maybe if I'm hearing you correctly, that that might have been what you were getting at was this this loss of sense of, of it being more of a, a complete holding of the circle and maybe even first and foremost of hearing the voices of the victims, whereas in in our case locally we had the occurrence of of a few victims feeling like we were um, a, a so-called offender-focused. So I just wanted to throw that in there uh, as an experience. <laughs> so thank you, Isabel, and um, thank you, Lauren, and I'd like to open up the line because we do have a hand up here. And then some more questions um, perhaps here after we go a little bit, Lauren, into um, how we set one up, uh, the the principles of of facilitation and how do we get involved in that way. But right now um, I'd like to open it up to Jim here live. And welcome to you, Jim.
2: Thanks. Um, So last week we talked with Carl about one of the consequences of having a really bad economy is, is that, judicial system is going broke here in California and probably around around the country. Uh, one of the other things that everybody's woken up to in California is that the war on drugs has had a very disproportionate and negative impact on minority um, minorities. And, um, and the legislature in California has just passed and Governor Jerry Brown has just signed bills that really put a lot of pressure on schools because schools are expelling and suspending Minority kids at very much higher rates than, than uh, other kids. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure from the top down. And um, in my little community, the superintendents of schools and the principals, are, many of them are Rotarians. And so when uh, I come to them and talk about restorative practices in schools and restorative justice in the court system, where I'm also a mediator, everybody's open to it because there's no practical solution. There's no money to keep doing what they're doing and what they are doing they see, see as failing. And so there's this an, an enormous synergy that's going on in addition to all the people on this call who are figuring, trying to figure out ways to affect their own communities. And so I'm actually very encouraged. I just wanted to say thanks for all, all of your, all your good work because it's all coming together in ways that I would have never dreamt a few years ago. I was born in Rochester, New York in 1944 and I, I know now that Dominic Barter went there and trained a whole bunch of people just recently, and uh, it's it's a community that's changing enormously. And there's a very large minority population there, and people are really working on it around the around the country, and it's actually working. Yep.
1: Yep. Mm. and it's it. Thanks for that. I mean, it it, it is working, and and it is really heartening to see. I mean, I, here in Maryland, when I go to the legislature and and talk with um, legislators on both sides of the aisle, it's no longer an a issue of left or right. I think, you know, people on both sides of the aisle recognize that what we're doing isn't working and that it's very expensive. Now, there's a private prison industry that's benefiting from having so many people in prison and um, and the fact that it's racist in its implementation is you know, even more reason to address these issues. But I think that there's both Republicans and Democrats that are recognizing that the criminal justice system is broken on so many levels. And what we need now is the political will to change it. And unfortunately, we've got economic conditions that hopefully are going to push it
0: over a bit. mm Mm, And and Lauren, just a quick note, I I know many of us here tonight know probably a lot more um, about what you're referring to, but just in case you're not aware, um, the truths that that she's pointing to around the prison industrial complex, you you might be interested in learning more about the Correctional Corporations of America and um, also the GEO Group. As well as the telecommu- excuse me, the telecommunications industry involved in um, communications related to prisons. So, um, it's important to know the truth, and then of course, as we do here, we we really focus our our fire on um, hands-on change, knowing these truths. So, yeah, um, I mean, one thing so, that I
1: just I recently read the the law in in Arizona to have people, you know, that was passed in Arizona, was it last year or the year before, that people had to have identification. That law was written by a lobbying group that was hired by the private prison industry. That probably was Alec, right? Um I'm not that, sure if it was Alec or not. Uh-huh. But it was Interesting. It was written by a lobby, <laughs> the actual legislation that the private prison industry commissioned
0: the lobby group to, to write the legislation which eventually mm-hmm. got passed. Well I'd like to go ahead and and uh, we have a lot of questions still tonight and I still would like to get to a bit about the facilitation Lauren <laughs> and okay. um, you know models and, and such but I'd really like to honor Rebecca's question. And Rebecca, I know you're live on the call tonight, so if you do want to ask your question live, just go ahead and press one on your keypad. If not, no worries. I will read it for you. But uh, on the note of funding sustainability, um, she had submitted a question. So I'm going to open it up to her. It looks like she'd like to ask you live, Lauren, and make her comment. Welcome, Rebecca.
5: Hi. Thank you, Lauren. Um, I'm in Rochester also. Hello, Isabelle. Um, and I'm calling because I'm interested in funding models uh as as Isabel knows we are facing issues of financial sustainability. Um, and I would love to know what what has been effective for you in in putting together a financial model that that enables this work to go on.
1: who well. in a seat of the pants model. Um, yeah. We, for, you know, we I started out pretty much for three years doing this on my own time, and then we got um, some local foundations to support our work in a reasonably, you know, just to get started. And I would say that for the first six years. of our funding came from local foundations, um, Mm -hmm. which everybody probably knows that foundations only want to fund you for a certain period of time, and then they say what's your plan for sustainability and to bake this into the the institutional um, procedures so that the state is supporting it, which is always easier said than done. But um, we did eventually, Our the Maryland judiciary fortunately is very progressive um, in stark contrast to our Department of Juvenile Services who really should be funding most of our work and they've given us a small amount of money for four of our 14 years. So um, I don't know what to tell you other than, I mean a couple things that I've, been very conscious of, which is to not grow too big. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're the biggest that we've been. We handle referrals for over 1,000 young people every year, and we have a staff of eight. Um, And they're just really incredibly committed and talented group of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there have been opportunities for us to, you know, to get – some big bunch of funding that really is only going to last for a year. And mm-hmm. I, I never take, I never take that. Mm-hmm. Like we had, we were three people for maybe four or five years. Mm-hmm. And we just, I think part of it is um, really, you know, having a lot of integrity in, in, um, doing what we say we'll do, and really we we worked hard at building a reputation for a group that, you know, did good work. Mm-hmm. And I think that over the years that that has served us really well. But it took, I mean, it took a good six years to get feet or to get some, some roots in the program. Mm-hmm. Um, now the Maryland, uh, we get maybe 60% state funding and 40%, 30% foundation funding and 10% from other sources. So, um, I mean, I think that part of it is um, building, you know, not growing, just being tight in terms of how how you develop the organization to, to begin with. Um, And one thing that I have found really helpful for a lot of years is what I kind of have (laughs) called bottom feeding, which is at the end of the fiscal year to go to agencies and say, do you have any money left that you need to spend? (laughs) Um, I mean, honestly, (laughs) we like existed like that for several years. Um, And it's hard because it's not something you can count on, but... Most, the way things go, you know, three months before the end of their fiscal year, places know if they've got money left. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's not a way to run a pro (laughs) to sustain a program, (laughs) but it can fill in, you know, you can do some good spackle work with that stuff. I love that term spackle work. (laughs) Yeah, so, so
5: being willing to
1: put in blood, sweat, and
5: tears and being very, very careful, uh... To make sure that everything you do has has integrity and and uh, adequate follow up and 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 not take on more than you can handle and build a reputation that way.
1: Yeah, and and, do and the occasional
5: bottom feed.
1: Right, and we've documented our outcomes and we share them. Like I go around in my pocketbook with a a folder that has all of our data over the last six years.
0: And I share that with people. That's um, interesting because that was going to be something I wanted to make sure we talked about tonight, Lauren. Yeah. So uh, the the working model piece But I don't, I I really appreciate this conversation about this important piece because I think it's on everybody's mind, and I know yeah. that quite a few of us here tonight have probably are facing similar issues. So this is a very important yeah. wisdom. I mean, the
1: process itself speaks for itself. I mean, when people hear about a conference that went really well for a case that was really sticky or, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, one story can take you a long ways. Mm, But I can't tell you how many times I'm like out at a school or someplace and somebody says to me, your place is amazing. You know, your people actually return my call within a day after I called them. And they they did what they said they were going to do, you know. And people comment on that so often.
0: Mm. So. Well, thank you, Rebecca, and um, yeah. I just want to want to turn to Lauren. The um, another common thread in these councils, and also during Justice Week, uh, as a segment of the Summer of Peace, um, one of the common threads has been a working model and you were just saying that you have something that you share with people. Um, Is there something that people can access uh, either online or or otherwise or is there something in the works that that might be kind of a a guide for people to use in possibly implementing something like this in their own community?
1: Well one of the things that we typically do is we um I mean, we do facilitator trainings twice a year in Baltimore. Um, but I think training facilitators is about 5% of the work of what it takes to build a program. And what we've been trying to do is to work with a small group of com- people who are really committed in trying to start a program of their own in that what we want to do is work with the groups for – two to three years um, working on a, you know, through all the program development issues. Um, and the facilitator training piece is really only a small part of it. So when we engage with a group to to do the whole program development package, you know, we share the database with them. We start before the facilitator training in, in talking about how to generate interest and stakeholders, and it's kind of a soup to nuts thing. Um, and so that's something people can all, can contact us, and we develop, you know, we figure out what people need and what we can provide in that way. Um, and I know that there's groups out there that use restorative practices in really creative ways. Um, I think that Betty Burks might be on the call and she's, with, um, she's been very instrumental in, with a group in New Orleans called Rethink and they work with young people and um, use restorative practices in different ways. I think finding out where there are different programs that are working and talking with people is really helpful.
0: Um, and and so indeed, Betty to... is on the line tonight, or she is in the council room tonight. Um, so, just sending out a warm welcome to you, Betty, and um, yeah. and just uh, Lauren. On that note, where where is that happening? Is there a central area that you have noticed in the virtual realm or otherwise where people can get together? And um, I mean, besides. Possibly this humble council that we've been doing, but um, oh. other ways for people to you know to, to find each other and to discuss what's working what's not what's happening out there, given that there's so much coming there is a lot I mean we the groups that we
1: work with we try to meet virtually once a month or every other month um, there's a general restorative practices listserv that was being run through LinkedIn by that Lisa Ray um in California had put together and there's about two, three thousand people on that listserv. Right.
0: Um Right. Are you following and, right and they're also on Facebook. Um I believe it's okay. Isn't it I I R P. Is that Lisa Ray's It's not I I R P no. It's um
1: Oh, I don't know the name of it, and maybe if I can find it, would you be able to post that somewhere? Of course,
5: you bet. Know about it?
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, and then there's a group that started internationally called Restorative Practices International. Um, but the some of the ongoing discussions, I think, are. Uh, you know, there's a couple listservs out there that I can connect people with.
0: Wonderful. Well, I really appreciate the fact that, that you outlined um, or maybe uh, perhaps it's our our uh, those of us who are approaching this field and telling um, this
5: learning about the processes.
0: Um, our our inclination is to think perhaps that uh, the facilitation piece is, is a key aspect. So I really appreciate you. <laughs> reframing the lens a bit, that you know, although it's important, it's not the central aspect for this to move forward, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, in terms of building a program, I mean, the I'm actually I can't believe I I just spent a month um, I'm trying to actually put together somewhat of a guidebook for implementing programs like this, and it's divided into the principles. The process and the program implementation issues. So my hope is that that might be done by January. So maybe there'll be a resource out there for folks. That's excellent.
0: That's a little bit of what I was wondering might be brewing for you, given the the length and breadth of your experience and and gardening and tilling of this soil. So. And I just w- I would like to mention, too, again, to please like Community Conferencing Center on Facebook and to visit their website if you haven't already. There's some, already there's some resources there. You have a statewide network that you have um, listed and your partners, um, the background information and the the programs and services that you cover are quite wide um, as far as not just in in schools, mainly we've been talking about schools um, tonight but uh, also in law enforcement and and a very important program uh, in working with people re-entering from prison as we know, uh, many of us know there's there's little if any kind of bridging programs um, certainly supported from the inside. of our current correctional systems. So uh, that's one of the key aspects, especially if someone tops out and completes a sentence. They're basically left on the curb. So I just want to really appreciate and acknowledge that you're doing that as part of your programming. And then also returning from military service, you're assisting soldiers and their families. To reestablish vital supports as they deal with the social and emotional impact of serving in the war. That's another big area, that um, is a, a hole in our collective web, that you're answering to. So, um, I just want to to just uh, close tonight, um, Lauren, with you by just inviting you to to make any comments about um, the the ways that we can, can work um, more deeply as individuals and in our communities in this way. I, I know that we gather for this common purpose of leaning into uh, to, to conflict together. And how, how can we become friends uh, more deeply with ourselves and each other in conflict?
1: Oh, By doing that crazy radical thing of talking to each other um and especially talking with people who are not like us or who for some reason we perceive that we're not like, you know, that you know, just groups of people who you typically don't talk with or and um yeah, stepping up to to be present and to engage in that conversation, I'm just so impressed in doing this work that real transformation happens through an emotional connection with real people, um, and that it's not an intellectual process. Mm. So I'm just so heartened by everybody that's out there doing this kind of work, and, and that's integrating it into their personal lives, too. I mean, we've just become such a culture that where people and groups of people are separated from one another and thinking that we're very different. So, I just encourage people all of us to just stretch out a bit and mm. what what was that old tele telephone commercial reach out and touch someone?
0: <laughs> right. Right. Right and and uh and the power of vulnerability in this process as well. I love how you Speak to um, you know our common humanity, and and that uh, there's always something that we share, um, even even if we think that we're different or completely conflicted with the other, so to speak. There's always something that we share, and that's our basic need of love and uh, our common humanity.
1: Thank you so much, Molly.
0: And I just want to, again, thank you, Lauren, and thank everybody for taking part in this council tonight from wherever you came in, uh, into this room from our beautiful world that we inhabit, and for making it a better place by connecting uh, one by one in in this way. And I'm really excited to um, say that our special guest speaker, um, next week is Andrea Brennicki and she just, she happened to be a part of this council tonight as well. She'll be with us next Thursday, October 4th so just make note um, that that's Thursday, not Wednesday night, next week October 4th, same time 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern and I'd just like to invite everyone and Laura and you as well to take this conversation over to the discussion board at dopeace.us and to enjoy uh, further conversation there if you are so moved and to find the archive there um, for tonight's call posted shortly. So, Lauren, again, great thanks for your amazing work and for the way that you've shared with us tonight.
1: Thank you, and to you for yours and everybody. Thank you.
0: Thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful rest of your evening, wherever you are. Good night,
2: everyone.